Matthew 19, 16 through 24. And this is how the text reads. It says, And behold, a man came up to Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said, Why do you ask me about what's good? There's only one who's good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I've kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Pray with me if you would. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. And God, I pray now by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would give us eyes to see what you want to show us and ears to hear what you want to say to us. Uh, to be your bride is a great gift and we do not take it for granted pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. The title for today's sermon is, The Things We Carry and How They Blind Us. The Things We Carry and How They Blind Us. So seven or eight years ago, I was leading a team in Haiti, and we were riding down uh, the windy road from Coqchamp into Jacmel, and uh, it was toward the end of the week, and I was, I was tired. I was, I was missing home. I was missing my family. I was missing air conditioning. I was missing Chick-fil-A, and if you can't tell, this is me preemptively trying to prepare you for a lapse of judgment that I am about to, to share with you. But we were riding in the back of the open-air truck that uh, the church, our ministry, uh, used to own. And this truck, yeah, there's a picture of it right there. A lot of you have ridden on that truck many times. That's what it looks like right there in the dead center of that truck are the future uh, Nimrod Zimmerman's parents right there. That's Cody in the red throwing up gang signs. I don't know what that's about. And Kenzie's standing uh, next to him. And then uh, Lucas is, uh, is there. And so... Uh, yeah, that's what the truck looked like. So the truck, a lot of you've ridden on it and ridden the same route that I'm talking about. It's like there's, uh, the, there's aluminum panels on the walls behind you on the sides, and then there are bench seats, and you can sit and you can face each other. And you can see out through slits in the panels, or you can see out the back. The back was these had double doors, and you'd open those doors, and you could close them, and they were barred, and you could put a lock on there if you were traveling with something that you didn't want anybody to have uh, access to. But as we were headed down uh, the mountain, uh, as a lot of Haitian folks are, are and were prone to do, uh, while the truck is still moving, especially uh, Haitian guys, can be like five-year-olds all the way up, they will run and just hop on the back of the truck at any given moment, and they stand on the bumper, and they wrap their arms around the truck's bars, and they're really just looking to try to get a free ride to wherever it is they're going. So like if they were walking into the city, and they do this especially to uh, ministry trucks, because I think they're way less likely to kick people off, you know? 
And so that's what, all week long, they had been doing this. Like everywhere we went, we'd just be riding on the road, and all of a sudden, like five dudes just hop on the back of the truck, and they're cruising. And uh, needless to say, it's a pretty dangerous thing to do, okay, uh, for a lot of reasons. But one, if you get a lot of folks on those bumpers, there's only so much space. And you can see them back there, like lobbying for position, like trying to find a handhold, trying to make sure that they've got plenty of room on the bumper so uh, that they can, they can cruise. And usually when we go to Haiti, especially back then, we would have a security guard with us. And at the time, we had John um, with us, and John was a member of the Haitian National Police. And uh, John carried a weapon, and these guys would uh, hop on the back of the truck, and then John would kind of forcefully tell them that they needed to get off of the back of the truck because it was too dangerous, and they would hop off. Well, on this particular day, we're riding down the mountain. We're almost into the city of Jockmill, two teenage boys, teenagers, maybe young 20s. They run up and they uh, hop on the back of the truck. And for whatever reason, uh, John doesn't say anything. Now, remember, like I've already told you, I, I'm, I'm tired and uh, it's toward the end of the week. I've already said that. And uh, I, I look at John and, uh, and I tell him, I say, John, uh, I hate it when people do that. I hate it when guys do that. I was like, for one, it's dangerous. For two, if we get into an accident or if a kid falls off the back of that thing and somebody gets hurt, I was like, our minister, the church could be held liable for what happens. I said, uh, John, please tell those guys to get off of the back of the, the truck. And so John looked at me, and he was kind of like surprised, you know. And uh, I thought, well, maybe you don't understand me. John doesn't speak. He still to this day doesn't speak very good English. I don't speak very good English. I'm from Maine. We'll keep that in mind. And uh, I definitely don't speak very good Creole. And so uh, I repeated it to him. I go, John, I don't like it when guys do that. You see those two guys. Will you ask them? I'm doing hand motion. I'm like, will you ask them to get off of the truck? So John's like, all right. So he turns around, he looks at the, the two guys, and he says to them in the tone of voice that he uses when he's being forceful, like his police voice, he says, hey, the pastor is asking that the two of you get off the truck. And one of the guys, he looks at me like completely heartbroken. But then he jumps off, and then the other guy jumps off too, and we ride for another like 10 or 15 seconds. And John looks over at me, and he said, uh, pastor, did you know that that was Valencia's brother? Now, for those of you who don't know, Valencia is Mark and Angie's adopted daughter, and I had just kicked uh, his, her brother off of uh, the Haitian version of the Jesus bus, right? He's like one of the nicest people in the world, and I had booted him, and so... Uh, I immediately, when I realize what I've done, uh, the mistake that I've made, I knock on the side walls of the, the trailer, and because that's what you do when you want the vehicle to stop, and they stop, and uh, I'm like, John, tell them please to get to come back, to get back on the truck, and I go back there myself, and I'm like opening the door, I'm rolling out the red carpet for them now, I'm like, I'm so sorry, like I had no idea that, uh, I had no idea who, who you were, you know, I am not I'm not very good at making first impressions anyway, but I think that might have been like the worst. Like that's the, I kicked him, I kicked him off the truck. So I apologize to he and his friend for being rude. Now, the uh, point of that story is I'm a bad person. That's the, that's the point. And if you'll listen, that's the, that's the sound of nobody disagreeing with me right now, okay? Now, the real point is, uh, my own pitiful attitude had blinded me to reality. The things I was carrying, the emotions I was feeling, 
the exhaustion, the missing home caused me to stop seeing people as people. I was seeing nuisances when I should have been seeing neighbors. But the truth is, every single one of the guys all week long who had been hopping on the back of that truck, they were all complex human beings made in the image of God. Church, I don't know about you, but when I'm in a bad place, I don't see people as people. I just don't. When I'm in an unhealthy place, I see people as problems. I see them as pawns in my story. I see them as roadblocks on my journey. And God used that moment to wake me up. I mean, now every time that I go to Haiti and every time I meet a stranger, I assume, hey, this could be Valencia's brother. This could be Valencia's sister. And so I treat him with kindness. There is a, a really great poem that was originally written in Hebrew, and it was written by a man named Yehuda Amichai. And just to set the poem up, it's kind of like a short story. The situation that he's describing is he was in the city of Bethlehem, and he had just bought a couple of baskets of fruit that he was about to take home to his family, and he had an encounter with a group of tourists there. And the poem is called The Tourist, and this is what, this is what he said. These are his words. He says, once I sat on the steps by a gate at David's city. I placed my two heavy baskets at my side. A group of tourists was standing around their God, and I became a place marker. You see that man with the baskets? Just right of his head is an arch from the Roman period, but he's moving. Oh, he's, he's moving. Amateur goes on. He says, I thought to myself, Redemption will only come if their God tells them, you see that arch from the Roman period, it's not important. But next to it, left and down a bit, there sits a man who's bought fruits and vegetables for his family. Church, we need to be really careful that we don't turn people into place markers. We need to learn to see strangers as neighbors and place markers as image bearers. Too many of us are prone to let the things that we carry blind us to humanity. In the ancient city of Megiddo, Israel, there is a, uh, a gate, uh, a back entrance, a narrow gate that zigzags into the back of the city. Now, still to this day, Megiddo, as a city, is completely walled in. And history tells us that locals referred to this back narrow gate, this back entrance uh, to the city, they referred to it as the eye of the needle. And the only time they opened up this back gate was if it was dark, they would do it at night, but then they would also do it at any time when the city's officials didn't think it was safe for the city's main gates to be open. And so you can imagine you're a traveler coming into Megiddo and it's nighttime and you're trying to come through that back way. And if you traveled like a lot of people did in the Middle East, then maybe you've got a camel with you and a camel's carrying a lot of your stuff, like your bags, whatever it is that you're hauling. Well, when you'd get up to that narrow gate known as the eye of the needle, the only way for a camel to be able to fit through the needle's eye, to fit through the back gate, was for all of the things it was carrying to be removed. All of its baggage, all of its excess 
you pull those things off, and then it was still a tight fit for them to go through that entrance. So when Jesus tells the rich man in Matthew 19 to sell everything that he has and to give the money to the poor, he wasn't judging the man for his wealth. He was trying to do him a favor. He was trying to get the man to strip himself down to remove all the baggage that he was carrying so that he could fit into the kingdom. He was trying to get him to strip of his excess goods all the things that he was holding on to. He was trying to get them to take those things off so he could walk the narrow way, fit through the narrow gate. Ultimately, he was asking him to lay down all of his other treasures so he would have eyes to see the one true treasure that was standing in front of him in Jesus. The Bible tells us, and you all know this, that the rich man went away sad because he had a lot of stuff and he was a little too fond of it. And then Jesus famously says a quote that a lot of people know even if they don't go to church. It's easier for uh, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because the camel is willing to allow himself to be stripped of all that he is carrying. The rich man, not so much. Now, Jesus wasn't saying here that stuff is bad. He's just saying that we don't need to hold on to it too tightly because the things we carry, whether they are uh, emotional or material, they have a way of blinding us. They prevent us from being able to see each other accurately and they prevent us from being able to see Jesus accurately. It is only by allowing ourselves to be stripped down, laid bare before the Lord, that we'll get to a place where we begin to see strangers as neighbors and Jesus as Savior. We got to be able to see Jesus to be saved by Jesus. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 11 now. I'm going to show you one of my favorite uh, verses in the scripture. I got three texts today, and the next two I share with you are two of my all-time favorites. This is Matthew eleven sixteen through nineteen. Are y'all tracking with me? Okay. Am I the only bad person in the room? Nope. Jacob's here. Hey, man. No offense, man, but we've lived some life together. Matthew eleven sixteen. Francois, were you with me when I kicked Valencia's brother? I was afraid you were. That makes it even worse. I saw you come in today, and I was like, I think he was there. You should have told me, man. Matthew eleven sixteen through 19, and this is Jesus talking, and this is what he says. He says, but to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating or drinking, and they say he has a demon, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. In the verses just before the verses that we just read, we get John the Baptist's opinion of Jesus. And then Jesus shares with us his opinion of John, and then we are told how the general population was viewing both Jesus and John. On its simplest level, this is a text about the inability of Jesus' contemporaries to see him as the Son of God and to see John the Baptist as a man 
sent from God. Like us, the people in Jesus' day were blinded by the things they carried. They were blinded by their own baggage, blinded by their own preconceived notions, blinded by their own expectations. And this prevented them from being able to see Jesus as the Messiah, as God's son. I love it. I think it's beautifully poetic. Jesus says about his own generation, he goes, this is, this is how I'm going to describe the generation I, I'm living and walking in. He goes, you're like children in the marketplace. And he said, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. Jesus is saying, I, I'm the one playing the, the flute. I'm playing the sweet song of your redemption. And nobody's dancing. And he goes, John is the one singing the dirge, the, the kind of mournful song of God's judgment, but nobody's mourning. Instead of repenting and rejoicing, church, did you see what the people were doing in Jesus' day? Instead of rejoicing and repenting, they were calling him names. They said about Jesus, is that guy, yeah, we think he's a drunkard. And then John the Baptist, they said, Oh, we're pretty sure that he has a demon because here's the thing, church. If you label people, you don't have to listen to them. If you label people, you don't have to listen to them. Church, have you ever noticed that when people aren't living faithfully themselves, that's when they really start to police other people's faith? When people aren't living faithfully themselves, that's when they become like the faith police. There is nobody more judgy on the planet than a stunted believer. This is why a lot of more traditional churches, like with older congregations, have reputations for being full of so much judgment because uh, when kingdom movement ceases, kingdom monitoring begins. When people aren't walking faithfully themselves, they begin trying to police everybody else's faith because they want to make sure they're still on firm ground. So they're looking down at everybody else to make sure that they're still below them or behind them. Once we start judging people, we stop seeing them. And once we stop seeing them, we make it to where we don't have to listen to them. Now, can you imagine how frustrating this must have been to all the generations who had come before Jesus, like all of the Jewish folks, the fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers for generations who had come before Christ came, all the people who had longed for the Messiah, all the people who were in captivity, who had cried out to, to God many times begging for rescue. And now Jesus was there and he was walking among them, doing miracles, living, and nobody was paying attention. I mean, for the most part, People didn't even notice. They paid he and John no mind, especially the religious people. <coughs> One of the reasons that I think Jesus found such a captive audience amongst the poor and the downtrodden and the broken is that they, they were already naked. The world had already stripped them of their goods. They had already been stripped of their will, of their goals, of their dreams, of their expectations. Unlike us, they didn't have any other treasures that were competing for their attention or for their captivation. There was nothing competing for uh, them when it came to Jesus. It was like from the get-go, these were folks who, like the camel, if they showed up trying to get through the eye of the needle, they didn't have quite as much stuff to take off. They, just, they, fit, in, they fit through 
right at the, the start. An abundance of baggage, church, only leads to a never-ending array of excuses. An abundance of baggage only leads to a never-ending array of excuses. Uh, the, the things we carry are what we're going to turn to, I think, on, on the day of judgment when we try to make excuses for our disobedience. Well, we'll go, I had to take care of that. I had to, I had to do that. I had to make sure that that was fixed. And the Spirit the whole time just going, no, all you had to do was listen to my voice. All you had to do was do what I said. I want to say this today to somebody who may be watching online or somebody who is in the room and maybe right now you are in a season where you feel like a lot of things are being stripped away from you. Yeah, like you feel like you're being, you're being uh, stripped, uh, stripped down. Maybe, maybe it's COVID. Maybe you've, you've lost a job that you had for a long time. Or maybe you've taken a, a significant pay cut. Or maybe you're in a place where it's like you're just on, at the tail end of a relationship that you thought was going to be a forever relationship. If, if that's you, I want you to hear me say this first. I, I mourn with you today, okay? I, I mourn with you those losses. But I want to ask you, ha have you considered that uh, this season of lack, in, in this season of lack for you, uh, the things that God might be pulling away from your life, the baggage that he may be removing, is it possible that he's doing that so you'll be able to see him more clearly? Is it possible that you're like the camel waiting at the gate and, and the father's over there in his refining fire and he's pulling these things off, making sure that you'll fit through the narrow gate, making sure that you'll be able to walk through the narrow way? If the things we carry blind us, then when we lay those things down, whether it be by our choice or by necessity, uh, we should be able to see more clearly. For me, church, this is the main call of the day, and it is a call to lay some things down. Lay down the baggage. Lay down the hurt. Lay down the shame. Lay down your expectations. Lay down your will. Lay down your way. Let go of all the things that you have been carrying for far too long. Lay down all the stuff that you got one day thinking that that would be the thing that satisfies you. Lay down the very idea that anything other than Jesus will satisfy you. And then when you stand there before the Lord, naked, laid bare, with no baggage, nothing hold holding on tight to you, nothing to be chained down by, maybe then and only then will you be able to see him clearly. When we lay our stuff down, again, whether we do it by choice or whether it happens to us, it's then and only then that we'll be able to see strangers as neighbors and Jesus as Savior. Now, let me show you why I think that what I'm talking about this morning has eternal significance, okay? If you have your Bible on, you turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, another one of my favorite passages. This is Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. Still, the words of Jesus. You can never go wrong in a church as a pastor reading the red letters. Safe, safe place to be. Matthew 25, 31 through 46. And the verse I'm reading comes from the message, and this is what the text says. 
It says, when he finally arrives, blazing in beauty and all his angels with him, the Son of Man will take his place on his glorious throne. Then all the nations will be arranged before him and he'll sort the people out, much as a shepherd sorts out sheep and goats, putting sheep to his right, goats to his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, enter you who are blessed by my father. Take what's coming to you in this kingdom. It's been ready for you since the world's foundation. And here's why. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was homeless and you gave me a room. I was shivering and you gave me clothes. I was sick and you stopped to visit. I was in prison and you came to me. Then those sheep were going to say, Master, what are you talking about? When did we ever see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we ever see you sick or in prison and come to you? Then the king will say, I'm telling the solemn truth. Whenever you did one of these things to someone overlooked or ignored, that was me. You did it to me. Then he'll turn to the goats, the ones on his left, and say, get out, worthless goats. You're good for nothing but the fires of hell. And why? Because I was hungry, and you gave me no meal. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was homeless, and you gave me no bed. I was shivering, and you gave me no clothes. Sick and in prison, and you never visited. Then those goats are going to say, Master, what are you talking about? When did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or homeless or shivering or sick or in prison and didn't help? He will answer them, I'm telling the solemn truth. Whenever you failed to do one of these things to someone who was being overlooked or ignored, that was me. You failed to do it to me. Then those goats will be herded to their eternal doom, but the sheep to their eternal reward. Church, Jesus is speaking here about the final judgment. And he says at the final judgment, the Son of Man is going to be there, and he's going to separate people like a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. He's going to have the sheep come to his right. They'll be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven. He's going to have the goats come to his left. And they're going to, their future is the torment of hell. And when they ask him, well, why? What's the reason that you're separating one from one? It's all about how you treat the stranger. What do you do with, what do you do with strangers? Do you see the, the people that you meet when you walk out these doors? Do you see them as neighbors? Or do you see them as nuisances? When you see hungry people, do you try to make sure that they have food to eat? When you see uh, those who are naked, do you try to make sure that they have clothes to wear? What do you do with the stranger, church? How do you, how do you, see, how do you see the stranger? Years ago, I think it was 2005, Bethany and I uh, took a trip to New York City. And uh, it was an awesome trip. One, one evening, we took the Staten Island Ferry out to Staten Island. And um, uh, we went right at, at nighttime so that the, the sun was setting right behind the Statue of Liberty. It was, it was beautiful. And when we got out to, to Staten Island, I'd never been there before. And we were just kind of walking around. And this is 05, so it's a few years after 9-11. And we saw then that there was a, uh, there's a memorial on Staten Island for all the people who were lost on 9-11 in the terrorist attacks. I think it's called the Postcard Memorial or something like that. But it's really beautiful. I mean, it's a, it's a really, I highly recommend if you're ever in, in New York, go check this thing out because you walk up on it. And we were there uh, in the evening. And it's like, it's almost like there are two angels' wings or eagles' wings that are kind of stretched out to the side. And when you're trying to go to the memorial, you walk through these, these wings. And as you walk through there, uh, there were 275 people from Staten Island who were killed on 9-11. And every one of them is honored in this memorial. And the way it works is you walk down the center and on both 
sides, what's there is every single person who passed has represented their names there, some information maybe about their occupation. Um, but for me, what I, uh, that I thought was really cool is it also has the profile, the side profile of every single person who passed. And so like you can see their, their faces. I mean, it's such a, such a cool thing. But as we were standing there, and uh, there, there was a, a man who, who was kind of locked in on one particular uh, face. And there was a little boy that was standing about waist high to this man right there. And he's looking up at this thing, this thing too. And, and, um, and the man, as he's looking, he's not, he's not crying, but he's got his tears like welled up in his eyes. He looks like he could cry. And uh, the boy says to his dad, he goes, uh, he goes, Dad, I, I really miss Uncle Mike. He goes, I ran. His dad's just rubbing his hand over that profile. He goes, I really miss Uncle Mike. And the dad looked down. I assume it's his dad looked down. and goes, boy, he said, I miss him too. I, I really miss him too. And for me, church, that was another one of those moments where I felt like my eyes were open. It was like it woke me up because I realized in that moment, okay, this, this, this guy, this one, this was somebody's Uncle Mike. And that means because I'm looking at his one story that all these other 275 people who are represented in this place, they've all got stories too. That Every single one of them is somebody else's, somebody's son, somebody's daughter, somebody's mom, somebody's dad, somebody's brother, somebody's sister. And it changed the way that I think now about that memorial. And I think about the thousands of people who died. I think back on that moment and just seeing that one experience and, ha and, ha and having that one moment it changed the same way that being in the truck in Haiti and realizing, oh, this is, that's Valencia's brother. i got to change the way that I see folks here. That changed the way that I viewed 9-11. Church, in many ways, those same experiences, I think, I think that's the same thing that, that Jesus is trying to do when it comes to the Matthew 25 text, is that he's trying to open our eyes. He's trying to wake us up. To make it to where when we go out those doors, when we look around, we realize that every single person we meet might be him. He says so. Every stranger that we, that we meet, he might be in them, with them. At the very least, there are, there are children of the king, sons and daughters of God. You know, I'm about to leave here um, in just a few minutes, and I've got a, a, a funeral that I'm going to do at 3 o'clock today for a lady that I have never met before. She was 61 years old. I've only, her, her daughter asked me to do the service. I've only met the daughter one time. You know why I'm going to do that funeral church? Because that lady who passed it, she might have been Jesus. Her daughter, that might be, that might be Jesus. Every, we've got to get to a place, church, where we allow God to open our eyes so that we see strangers as neighbors, Jesus as Savior. And I really believe that if we stay on that path long enough, we'll get to the point where we begin to see Jesus in strangers, Jesus in our neighbors. I'm praying for you all today that God would open your eyes, that he'd wake you up, that when you leave this place, every person you'd meet, you would realize you wouldn't see them as nuisances, you'd see them as neighbors. Pray with me. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. God, I'm grateful for your word. I'm praying that you would be moving in our midst. I pray for the person who in this season does feel like they're being stripped down. They feel like they've lost a whole lot. And they look at their life and they go, I don't think, they don't think that they've done anything to, to, to make the situation look like the situation, the situation looks. I'm praying that right now they would realize that even in the midst of this season of lack, there's beauty. 
that you might be pulling some stuff away, that you might be asking them to lay some stuff down so that they can see you clearly, see you on full display, see your son and his rescue. God, help every person who's in this place today, help them to be able to see Jesus so that they can be saved by him. Move in our midst. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.